I want you to see a foundation being built. I want you to see the groundwork being laid. Because what Moses is going to do for us here, what God is doing for the Israelites here is, is he's laying the foundation upon which the law will stand. Because if we don't see it, if we miss it, then I think we'll be in danger that when the big bad wolf comes and blows on our house, I think we'll be in danger that when the rains fall and the floods come and the winds blow and beat against our house, I think we'll lose it all. If it's not built on the right foundation, and I think from an Old Testament perspective, there's an incredible foundation built in this chapter for the law. We'll carry it in into the New Testament as we continue this morning. But I want us to pay attention to this foundation. So as we get going, let's let's just pray about our time in God's Word together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this body. Thank you for gathering us together this morning, whether we're here in person or online. Father, we give thanks for your word. And we thank you that you've promised us that you would use your word in our lives. That you'd use your word to make us more and more like your son, Jesus. So, Father, as we open up the Bible this morning, would you open our eyes? And would you use your word to transform us? Would you use it to sustain us? Would you use it to give us strength and hope and perseverance? Father, would you use it to grow us in maturity? Father, that's our desire, that we wouldn't need milk, but you'd give us the meat of your word, that we all together could become mature believers in Jesus Christ. Father, do that amongst us this morning. Amen. As we progressed in the book of Exodus, we've seen God raise up Moses. We've seen the Lord deliver his people out of slavery and all that entails. We've seen God bring his people into the wilderness that they might see him and they might learn to live dependently on him. And that's looked like their neediness. And it's looked like his provision and his faithfulness to provide for them. And we've seen God lead them with a pillar of cloud and fire. And we've seen God provide water and manna and quail. We've seen God provide for his people abundantly. And this morning, as he moves forward towards giving them the law, we're going to see the foundation it's built on. So let's look at that starting in chapter 19, verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they set out from Rephidim, and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. Moses is setting the context for us. The Israelites have come to the base of Mount Sinai, they're camping out there, and we need to pay attention to this next sentence, I'm stopping mid-verse. There, Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. Now, I'm pausing here on purpose because there's a simple detail that unless you're paying attention to the whole of the book, you would miss it. So you've got to take this sentence and you've got to put it in context of the whole book of Exodus. Because in chapter 3, also at Mount Sinai, 
God makes a promise to Moses. And this, here in chapter 19, is its fulfillment. God has a purpose for it. So let's consider Exodus 3, verse 12. He said, this is God speaking, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, why do we need to pick that up? Why do we need to see that? In chapter 3, the Lord had appeared to Moses in a bush. In chapter 3, the Lord had told Moses he'd be sending him back to Egypt. In chapter 3, he told me he'd deliver the people out of Egypt and he'd lead them to the promised land. And in chapter 3, he'd promised, I will be with you. So why this? Well, a couple of reasons. One, I think he was trying to give Moses some reassurance. I'm going to give you a sign that if you wonder if I'm in the midst of this, I'm going to give you a sign. When you come back to this mountain with the Egyptians or with the Israelites, you will know that I've sent you. You'll know. It's a testimony. One of the great stories, one of the great narratives we see in Exodus is that God always keeps his word. Always. Even in minute details. And so when you get to something like this, you see a a little detail. Well, God is keeping his word. He's keeping his promise. He's telling Moses, I'm going to do exactly what I said I was going to do. And he's building Moses up. I want you to know, when you get to that spot, I want you to believe I've sent you. So Moses would have had to have got here and think, God told me something about this. I'm to remember I've been sent. So we've got to have that in our context. If you're going to build a foundation, sometimes you lay the, the sand before you put in the cement. This is like the undergirding. God keeps his promises. So let's take another step forward. Back to verse 3. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shall... Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. But you find God's brought Moses to Sinai, and now he's calling him up. God is going to meet with Moses. He's going to speak to Moses. We're going to see this played out in Sinai a number of times. But what we want to see here is the first thing God speaks to Moses is Sinai. His first message. Because these first words are important. Consider what he says. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. How I bore you on eagle's wings and I brought you to myself. God is calling the Israelites to testify to them. He's calling them to understand, you know what I've done. Now, at first, that may not seem like a big deal. But friends, make no mistake about it. If you want to get into the Bible, you want to understand biblical theology, New Testament, and old. You should see that the relationship between man and God 
is built on what God has done. It's built on who he is. It's built on what he has done. So when God calls Moses up and says, I want you to remind them of what I did to the Egyptians. How I bore you on eagle's wings. How I brought you to myself. He's laying a foundation of, you know I've already moved. I called you here. I've done the work. I freed you from slavery. I moved, removed you from the Egyptians. And he wants the Israelites to consider the judgment against those who've oppressed them. He wants them to see that it's been him that has secured their freedom. And it's God that has brought them to himself. If you'll even consider the illustration that I bore you on eagle's wings, you ought to know and understand if you read through the reality of the Old Testament, you see it in the Psalms, you see it in other places in the Old Testament, this illustration of an eagle who would fly alongside and just below its young to provide protection, to provide support, to provide strength, so that when the young couldn't, when the young ran out of strength, it could lean on its parents. The young could actually be carried by its parents, even in flight. That's the illustration God is pushing them to here. So you're supposed to see in this is God's not just removing them from slavery, but he's also supporting them and sustaining them. He's wanting to show them that our entire relationship is built on entirely God's work, not man's work. Now we're going to dig into the New Testament implications of that here in a couple minutes. But I want you to consider in Deuteronomy 7, the book of Deuteronomy, it's the final book in the Pentateuch. It's Moses preaching really through a lot of these events. Consider what Moses says in Deuteronomy 7 about this time period. Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8. It was not because you were more in number than any of the other peoples that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. It's not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. Remember that phrase. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Moses preaches back to the Israelites this event. God didn't redeem you because you were big, strong, great, or had potential. In fact, you were the smallest. God is making a very clear claim that my desire to save you, to pluck you, to make you mine, had nothing to do with you. You had no merit on your own. Rather, what he says is like the Lord set his love on you and chose you because he loves you. It's not based on you. It's based on him because he loves you and is keeping an oath. 
So why do I push this? Why am I saying this over and over that the foundation of our relationship with God is based on what he has done? I've got two reasons for you. The first is because the Bible very clearly teaches that. And secondly, and this is what I'm wanting to lean into this morning, if we progress to the law, if we progress to the law without understanding this rich foundation, if we progress to the law where there's a do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do that, if we progress to that without understanding a foundation of what God has done, we land in moralism. We land in rule following. We land in do this, don't do that. We land in it's time to earn your way in. We land in you have to have merit for God to have attention for you. And beloved, that's simply put, not in the Bible. It's not in the Old Testament. It's not in the New Testament. God says, look at what I have done. I brought you out. I have carried you. You are mine. It's not based on you. It's because I loved you. And then you get to verse 5. Now, therefore... The old biblical adage, when you get to a therefore, you should ask what it's there for. It's a connecting statement. It's going to tell you that this is based on that. That's why when you see a therefore, you should dig in on what's before it so you can get some really firm grip on what's before it. Because of what God has done. Therefore, if you will indeed... Obey my voice and keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God calls Moses up the mountain that he might make a covenant with his people. God gives Moses some covenant language to talk about with the people to take this covenant that they had with Abraham to build on it, to reaffirm it, and to recognize that because of who God is, because of what God has done, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant. God wants to make a promise with this group of people. He wants to join into a formal relationship with them. This covenant language is reminiscent of what's called a suzerainty covenant. It's a big word. You don't ever have to remember it. But it's the idea of a king making an agreement with a peasant. Whereby the king has all the power, all the authority... All the resources, the king has everything and the peasant has nothing. And yet the peasant would pledge his allegiance to the king and receive all the king's provisions. That's what's happening here. That's what this covenant looks like. If you will obey my voice and keep my command. Keep my covenant. God asks the people, will you acknowledge who I am, will you honor me and will you receive everything from me? 
That's what's going on here. Will you submit to me? And then look at what they receive. You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. Have you ever considered how many peoples are on the planet? There's an enormous number of people groups on this planet. And God says, because of what I've done, because of who I am, because I love you, I'm going to covenant myself with you, and you will be my favorite people. You're going to be treasured to me. And you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I will set you apart. God in his covenant says, trust in me, believe in me, and I'm going to set you apart because I want the world to know that you're mine. I want you to, the world to know you're mine, so I'm going to set you apart. I'm going to give you a special position. I'm going to give you a special calling. And it's because you're mine. Friends, this, it's huge. It's huge. And I wanted to, I've been studying, trying to figure out how to break this the text down. And you realize, man, we've got to stop here. Because if we keep going, if we progress into the Ten Commandments, that's chapter 20, we'll have plenty of time to dig into that. If we progress on, we will quickly get caught up on, what do I need to do? And that's not what God's intention is here. In fact, if you find, reading chapter 19, as you work through it, God makes this covenant and then says, I want you to sit for three days. Before we have the next conversation. Do you know why that is? Because he really wanted them to get this. He really, really wanted them to see. Because of who I am. Because of what I've done. I'm making you my people. It's not rooted in what you can do. It's rooted in what I've done. God begins to set apart his people. Because they're his. And it's based on who he is and what he's done. If I say that a thousand more times, it won't be enough. It's based on, rooted in, built upon his work. So let's finish these next couple of verses. Verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And the people answered together and said, All the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Now, church, keep this in context. Can you imagine a God who you cry out to from slavery? God, you know what we're going through? God, can you fathom what slavery is like? Do you remember the moaning and groaning in early Exodus? God hears his people, raises up a deliverer, brings plagues, delivers them mightily, miraculously through the Red Sea. And this God is saying, 
I've got a lot for you. You're my favorite people. And it's all based on who I am and what I've done. I want to make a promise to you. I want a covenant with you. That regardless of what you do, I'll be faithful to you. I'm just asking you to believe. I'm asking you to obey. Friends, what we need to see here is that the foundation of faith is not what we've done. The foundation of faith is not what can we do. The foundation of faith is what has he done? What has he done? Let's consider the New Testament. We believe in Jesus Christ. It's not what you can do. It's not can you earn it. It's not strive for it. It's not be good enough. I very legitimately believe that one of the main reasons why we're watching people deconstruct their faith in this country is because we don't get this at a heart level. What do I mean by that? I mean, when we consider our life, our hope, our salvation, and our faith, I think we're supposed to fundamentally and foundationally understand, not just intellectually, but at a rich heart level, that it is completely based on the work of Jesus Christ. It's not based on a people. It's not based on a group of people. It's not based on my striving or your striving or on or our striving. Our faith is based on the work of Jesus Christ. Now I want to say that about 10 more times. Because often I sit with people who will say, but you don't know what he did. You don't know what she did. You don't know what they did. And often the answer is, you're correct. But I know what Jesus did. And I want us to wholly get our mind around the reality that we're here together this morning because of what Jesus did. That Satan is going to have all kinds of distractions to the faith. And those distractions will be rooted in what he did, what she did, what they did. I want to be sensitive to that. I understand there are people, even people here this morning, who've had bad experiences in churches. Add my name to the list. I've had several. But beloved, when we root our faith and our faith practice on what other people do, we've missed the gospel. For I am not here because I think any of you are going to be satisfying to my soul. I'm not here because I think we have this mutual understanding of each other where we're not going to hurt each other too much. No, I'm actually very literally here 
Because Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. He removed me from the slavery to sin and has set me apart to be his forever. Church, I want to know. I want to hope for you. I want to trust for you. I want to believe for you that that's true for you too. Because if it's not, if your foundation is not secure, if you really at any level believe that people should meet your expectations, I got to tell you, there's a big bad wolf. I got to tell you, the rain is coming. The floods are coming. And it's all going to collapse. The foundation of our faith is built on who he is and what he's done. That's the whole premise of the church gathering together at all. That we would gather together and we would acknowledge that there's only one who's good. And let me just say this to be clear. It sure isn't me. There should have been a whole lot more amens. It's Jesus. We gather together because of who he is and what he's done. We're teaching the epistles of the New Testament. I would say over and over and over again, the indicative must precede the imperative. It's the smart way of saying who you are comes before what you do. For if you get those in the wrong order, because of the, all the things that you could wrongly build your foundation on, you could build it on other people, you could build it on you. And you could slowly believe when we get to the law, and it's a checklist, if I do these 10 things, I'm good. If I don't do them, you know, I'm in trouble, so work harder. That's not what the Bible teaches. The indicative precedes the imperative. Who God is, is worth more than who you are. And knowing who you are comes before what you're called to do. And knowing who you are in the context of Scripture requires you to primarily look at the work of Jesus Christ. Because when you understand who you are within the realm of salvation... The only thing you did in the realm of salvation was cause the problem. And in the realm of salvation, the only thing Christ did was literally everything else. We're here, we're gathered because of what Jesus has done. And because his work at the cross was so completely sufficient... That we become his entirely. And so he calls us to be his and to live a set apart life. And it isn't for our merit. It isn't because we have to earn anything. It's to understand that we're called to live out the identity we've been given. Friends, we're going to lean into that in the next several weeks as we get into the law. What is the purpose of holiness? We're going to spend a lot of time talking about that in the next couple of weeks. And it isn't merit. 
It isn't be good, try hard. I want you to consider this for a moment. I want you to imagine this afternoon at 2. Think about you. I want you to imagine this afternoon at 2 that Pam, serving in the nursery, doesn't even know I'm telling the story, and I take you to the courthouse and we adopt you today. Now you may be 80. You could be six. Doesn't matter where you are in life. It doesn't matter what responsibilities you have. For just a minute, I want you to imagine that Pam and I adopt you today at two. And Pam and I bring you home and we give you a room to live in. We have to move my girls around to create an extra room or you could share with Pierce. That's your decision. We're going to give you a room and we're going to give you a place at our dining room table. This is where you sit in our family. But I want you to know and I want you to see that it's not just about space. It's about the fact that we are bringing you in because we have committed to love you, to hug you, to be for you, to read to you to pray with you, and to struggle in life with you. Because Pam and I know that adopting you is not going to go well. There are five sinners that live in my house. You will be the sixth. We fully expect that you're going to get in squabbles with other people living in our house. And we're going to work on it. Why? Because God is good. And we want his gospel to run through our house. And being adopted into the Killer Lane house, knowing it's not going to be perfect, slowly over time, you would become more and more Killer Lane. Not out of obligation, not out of duty. You'd become more and more like us. And the illustration's about to really fall apart. And it would be because of the love of the Father. Why it falls apart. Not comparing myself to God. It'd be because of the love that you received. The welcome you received. The gospel that you lived in. You would begin to change. Not out of obligation or duty, but because you come to an understanding of who you are. And beloved, that, that's our faith. That's our faith. Not practicing this and not practicing that. Not doing these things and not doing those things. It's coming to an understanding That because of the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we have been adopted. Because of the completed work of Jesus Christ at the cross, our foundation is secure. It's like we should pause and declare out of Exodus 19... You yourselves have seen what I did to sin at the cross. 
and how I've borne you on eagles' wings, and I brought you to my Father. We're supposed to be reminded. This is God's good intention is giving us a gathering as a body that we could be reminded of the sufficiency of the cross so that we could look at, gaze upon the cross and be reminded that our foundation of our faith is Him. And therefore, we repent and believe. Therefore, we follow Jesus. Consider what Peter writes in 1 Peter 2 as I finish. You'll find some similar language. That's why I landed here. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Does that sound like Exodus 19? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him, Jesus, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Well, that is the family of God. You are not a people. You are an individual. You were adopted into his family. Now you are God's people. Now you've received mercy. But look at the language. Because you've believed in Christ. Because you're following Jesus, it's declared upon you. that You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Do you see how he's declaring, you are mine. It's every part of the indicative. It's every part of the reality that our faith is based on who he is and what he's done. So then when you go to two verses later, and he writes, literally two verses later, in 11 and 12, following what we just read, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which would wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, church, are we to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable? Yes. Are we to think about our good deeds? Yes. But if you make that your faith, if you go about your week thinking about that, practicing that, striving to do that without first really wrestling with and coming to the grips with the first two verses, 9 and 10, throw them back on the screen. If you don't live here for a really, really, really long time and build the foundation of your faith here, you miss the point. You miss the point entirely. This is what I want you to know. Our faith is built on who God is and what he's done. You can't earn your way in. There's nothing that you can do today that can please God. There's just nothing. 
God is pleased with you in Jesus Christ. God is pleased with you in Jesus Christ. God is pleased with you in Jesus Christ. Make that your identity. Make that your foundation. Make that your life's ambition. Make that your goal. To understand that you belong to him. To understand that what he has done is the most significant thing about you. Slowly but surely, leaning further and further and further into that, this next part just starts coming naturally. It just flows out of who Christ is in you. But you've got to know Christ first. Let me pray for us. Father, as we're gathered together this morning, many of us want to please you. Many of us want to know what to do and what not to do. Many of us want to earn merit. Many of us want to earn our place, earn our role, earn our spot. Many of us want to be good enough. We want to strive. And when we're not, It takes a toll on our souls. And many of us want other people to be good enough. We want them to have all the roles, all the rights, all the deeds. We want them to do everything right. And when they don't, whether it's a political figure or a pastor or a writer, an author, a singer, or a family friend, somebody you've known our whole lives, when they sin, it can destroy us. And yet, Father, we're called to build our faith on you. We're called foundationally to make our faith, our hope, our strength, Jesus Christ. So that we know who we are in Jesus Christ. So that our foundation is secure in Jesus Christ. Knowing full well that everyone on the planet, including me as a sinner, everyone on the planet will sin and fall short. Everyone on the planet will let us down. There's only one good, and that's Jesus Christ. So, Father, would you allow us to build our hope, our faith, and our strength on you? And when it's not, would you be kind and gracious and merciful to us and remind us of Christ? That our foundation would be secure. And Father, as we head into the law in Exodus, as God begins to declare what his people who belong to him should look like, that we wouldn't see those as duty, but we'd see it as a family code. God, would you work in our lives 
helping us to know and to believe Jesus all the more and to trust the cross all the more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.